the objects to observe in the February 2023 night sky on episode 297 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And today we are asking what the heck is up with the weather? Did you get any observing in this week, Shane? Well, before I get to that, I was just wondering when in the heck is a leap year coming? We have to be close and it's next year, Chris. So, next year. Yeah, yeah. Um, any observing? Uh, well, depends what you want to classify as observing. I observed a lot of cloud. <laughs> I observed a lot of cold temperatures. <laughs> I did not observe anything in the night sky, though, um, unfortunately, including... Uh, the comet that everybody else seems to be observing except me. So I'm, yeah. I'm getting sad about that, but yeah. it is what it is. How about you, Chris? Any, any observing for you? I, I, I've seen the moon mm -hmm. out the window. I've seen Jupiter out my window. I've seen Venus out my window. Um, we've had, we had unseasonably warm weather. In fact, somebody wrote us from the Jersey shore on the East coast of the US, which is way far south of here. And I think they were colder that night than we were. Mm -hmm. We've had um, warm weather for here, which is uh, up to uh, one degree above Celsius and, and into the just negative single digit teens. When it does that in Saskatchewan in the winter, it's basically just fog, heavy fog, and it descends and it, it sort of distills out and everything. It looks quite beautiful, doesn't it, Shane? Yeah, yeah. There's certainly an aesthetic to it that's uh, really neat to look at. But you can't see anything over your head. And even if it does clear out, you have to be careful because I've I've gotten trapped in this before. I don't know if this ever happened to you, Shane, but this, this happening when I first moved here is that it would clear a little bit. And I'd say, great, I'm going observing, throw my stuff in the car, drive way out on the prairie, and then the fog would move back in. And I'd have a nail biting drive home for half an hour, or it would turn a half hour drive sometimes into an hour and a half. And you're, you're driving in like pea soup fog um, and it could be pretty dangerous. So yeah, I, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That certainly can be a, a bit of a risk. And uh, anyway, it's uh, not looking good for me to see this comet. The forecast here for the next week is not looking too wonderful. So I don't know. I'll keep my fingers crossed and hopefully you know, there's a clearing early in the morning and I can pop out with some binoculars or a small telescope and, and log an observation. Yeah. It just, uh, just the way it's been going. Yep, exactly. So in this episode, we'll talk about the zodiacal light, Venus and Neptune in the same field of view, field of view. They're, they're actually going to be in conjunction and uh, the moon is going to pair up with Venus, Jupiter, and then Mars. And you can see those in your telescope. Some of them you can see under a high power telescope. Some of them need a wide field telescope. Oh, and just to let those listeners on the 365 days of astronomy know, you can catch all eight actual astronomy podcasts by subscribing in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, any of your pod catching apps that are out there or directories. And you can sometimes find our show notes. And the show notes for the show are going to be on actualastronomy.com. All right, Shane, ready to see what we can see in the February 2023 night sky? I couldn't rhyme the last bit. <laughs> Do better next time, Chris. <laughs> All right. You know, I, I was looking around. I use a variety of sources. I, I write <laughs> one of the sources that I use. We were discussing that earlier. It's sort of a strange thing, but I am the uh, editor of the RASC Observer's Calendar. 
And when I make these up, I use the RAC Observer's Calendar. I use the RAC Observer's Handbook. I'll take a look at the Canadian Sky News Magazine. I look at other sources. Uh, and I'm also a subscriber to a Sky and Telescope Magazine, big fan um, of magazines. So um, one thing that Sky and Telescope had that uh, none of the other sources had, and this, this would look kind of cool, is on February 3rd, Castor, Pollux, and the Moon are going to line up, particularly, and now I figured this out, it was in the magazine, but it's for Eastern uh, North America. Once you get to where we are, uh, the moon is going to be just slightly out of uh, out of line. It's going to form more like a vertical form of Aries or something like that, but they're kind of like equally spaced. And uh, I put a little image there, Shane. I, I was like, huh, that seems kind of cool. I wonder how that looks. And then when I put it in my software, I was like, Castor, Pollux, and the moon lined up. I think that does look kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. Castor and Pollux really stand out in the night sky. You know, mm. they are the twins. They they look very similar, naked eye in terms of brightness. Um, and uh, there's a lot of neat things to observe in Gemini, you know, as an aside. Uh, mm. But yeah, to have it sort of equally spaced with the moon, that'll yeah. be uh, that'll be a pretty thing to observe. And, and probably the best part of that is re- you just need your eyes. Uh, that'll be the best way to observe it. You do not need any special equipment for this one. No. So yeah, I'm gonna gonna take a look for that, and uh, I think it's gonna be pretty in the evening sky. Mm-hmm, absolutely, for sure. Um, it's a couple days before full moon, so I'm curious to see how much the moon washes out those other stars. But it won't be too bad because the full full moon occurs on February fifth. And uh, in my reading, I I found out that this is the smallest full moon of the year. And you know, Shane uh, of 2023, that is. You know, I think we should celebrate the smallest moon every year. Everybody always gets so excited about the uh, largest, um, you know, perigeal moons. But I think we should celebrate the smallest moon of the year because that's when the moon is going to be the least bright while it's full. (laughs) Makes sense to me as as somebody who enjoys observing uh, a lot of deep sky objects. um, That makes sense. Soon after, and this occurs um, on the 13th of uh it starts on the 13th you got you got a little while to do this um is the zodiacal light is visible in the western sky once the moon is out of the sky and uh when i was writing the observer's calendar uh last winter i i remember running this and seeing that that night occurs uh, on or about the uh, 13th of february that's the last quarter moon um what is the zodiacal light chain? What is what does it look like, and and what is it? Do you do you remember the story on this? Yeah, so it looks kind of like I don't know what to say. Almost like a like sky glow, or mm. if you're if you're out in a dark uh, like a dark observing site, and you can see the glow of a city in the horizon. If you sort of take that glow that you're seeing and and move it up into the sky, uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of triangular and. Um, trying to think here now the remnants of the zodiacal light was this the one that dave was yeah uh, yeah he he, um he kind of updated us on i guess the origins of that and it has uh i don't remember all the details something connected to mars why don't why don't you fill us in yeah i think it's that the solar wind is blowing material off mars they've they've recently discovered in past couple years and that that's uh in in orbit in the solar system and that it's our angle between us and that material that forms this i was in like you're right it looks like a triangle sort of like a taller triangle tall pyramid and it 
points up and just to the right of uh, of the Pleiades, and it's in the uh, plane of the ecliptic. And uh, right now we have Venus and uh, and Jupiter is sort of uh, you know entering into that area. And uh, so, so there's some planets there, and then you're going to have this light sort of in and amongst them. It um, it can be mistaken for light pollution that like you were com- comparing. Mm-hmm. It. It's a good comparison because when when you first step out of your car, you're going to think that it's some light pollution, but the zodiacal light can be pretty bright. And um, and even even to our uh, to our east here, where I've seen it, uh, I can still see the light pollution uh, just to the north of of the zodiacal light. Um, and it just looks very different. The, the light pollution tends to be more of a dome shape and, mm-hmm. uh, and with the zodiacal light, it's, uh, it's like a very tall sort of pyramid structure and, and almost form, forms like into a, a finite, uh, sort of point, uh, area up, uh, towards the uh, Pleiades. Yeah. And if anyone is, uh, is interested in observing this, you will need to get out of the city. Um, if you are under light pollution, I don't think you're going to see this. So try to get outside of the city. Now we've seen it not far outside of our city. Right. Uh, you don't need the darkest of skies, uh, but every little bit certainly will help if you are really wanting to see this. You know, where would be a good spot. Where is that my dark sky site? Because I have a really mm. beautiful view to the West and it's, that's my darkest part of the sky. Yeah. And that's a good point, Chris. You You do want a good view of the West. So you want that part of the sky to be dark. Yep. And what about northern versus, say, some more southern latitudes? What's more favorable? Well, I think right now, probably, I'm just guessing here, but I think right now, probably it would be a little northern mm-hmm. simply because um, it, uh, it, it it is on sort of the northern side of the ecliptic right now. But I don't think it's going to matter that much. I mean, it would be visible, um, you know, anywhere on the earth uh, you should be able to see, like, uh, Taurus and the Pleiades, they're going to be low down if you get too far south. So it's sort of on the, just on the, you know, the Northern part of the ecliptic right now, of course, cause it's, cause it's winter. And then in the, uh, in the autumn, probably the autumn version would favor the, uh, the Southern hemisphere when it's in the Eastern morning sky for us. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anything else on the zodiacal light? No, no, it's just a neat phenomenon. It's, it's fun to observe that if you've never seen it before. Yeah, and and typically um, the best time to see it is going to be uh, starting on the thirteenth, um, just after sunset, and for the following two weeks. Then the moon's going to interfere. Then it'll be the same thing for March, and then uh, once you get into April, it's it it's visible, but it's not quite as good. And then by by May, it's just simply uh, it's simply too bright. Uh, the material is always there, though. It's just this is just um, the period of the year when we can see it in the uh, western sky just after sunset. And then in the autumn, uh, you can see it, but it's in the uh, eastern sky uh, the hour or so before uh, sunlight interferes in the morning. Yeah, right on. This one's kind of neat. I'm kind of hoping we get some clear skies for this because mm-hmm. I'll just take out my little 60 millimeter telescope to look at this. And that is on February 15th, Venus and Neptune are going to be in conjunction and uh, it's pretty tight. I, I didn't run the number, but it's, uh, I think it's a degree or under a degree. So most telescopes can see uh, one degree or less, uh, even if they're a pretty big size, like 12 inch telescope uh, with a low power eyepiece, but uh, easily visible in uh, smaller instruments in the same field of view and even under relatively high power. Like I think 
for me, I, I should be able to get these in the same field of view in uh, with 70 power in my little 60 millimeter telescope. And uh, you'll be able to see Venus and Neptune in the same eyepiece at the same time. I've never seen that before. I think that'll be pretty cool. Yeah, it'll be really cool. And we often talk about these anchor objects that help you find other objects. Neptune can sometimes be challenging to find because it's not always naked eye and and um, sometimes it's not even near bright stars to do some star hopping from if you're inside a, an urban center with light pollution. So having it so close to Venus, which will be visible no matter what, as long as it's clear, uh, you'll easily find Neptune as well. So a great opportunity to observe Neptune if you've never seen it. And like you said, Chris, I don't recall a conjunction with Neptune and Venus um, recently anyway. Uh, and if there was, I certainly did not observe it. So yeah, fingers crossed that we have clear skies. Yeah, so Neptune is uh, is the faintest uh, planet. So it, it's around eighth magnitude. So uh, even in binoculars, it would be tough. And I'm not sure if binoculars... Um, would pull it out being so close to Venus because mm-hmm. um, Venus is going to be pretty bright, but through a telescope, an eighth magnitude star or, or planet in this case, within a degree of Venus, um, like a little 60, 70 millimeter, hundred millimeter telescope uh, should easily be able to, uh, to see that. And I'll be curious to see this. And uh, this happened during the occultation of of Mars, and we did an episode back in early December on that. If you flip back, uh, maybe fifteen episodes or something, we do a lot of episodes. Then, then you'll see that one when Mars and uh, the Moon were really close. Um, like Mars became super ruddy colored. Like I, I thought that the colors of Mars would become more pronounced as contrasted with the very white lunar surface. But uh, they got very ruddy and almost washed out in a way, like much more so than than Mars typically appears to my eye, anyhow. And and my wife, who was observing with me, noticed this independently uh, as well. Um, so we were kind of surprised at that. So I'll be curious to see. Uh, Venus is an absolutely brilliant stark white. Usually, you can see a little bit of a phase there because it's a inferior planet means it's on the inside track of the solar system from the earth. So like with our moon, you will also see phases with Venus. And so you'll see a bit of a phase there. Neptune's on the outside of our solar system. So this is just a chance alignment. They're not really that close to each other in physical space. They're still super far away by, oh, I don't know. I think it's like several astronomical units, something like a dozen or so astronomical units. Um, uh, but Neptune will, of course, be in a full phase and they'll be very close. I'm curious to see if Neptune's color, which kind of is a bit of an aquamarine, which I've only ever seen well in bigger, like 10 inch scopes. I'm wondering if I'll be able to see that in my smaller telescope uh, compared to Venus, or does it just wash it out? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting experiments to to play out, I guess, and just see what happens. Yeah. And then as well, like to be able to see that phase of Venus and then mm-hmm. to see the full phase of Neptune. Um, that could be, I think that could be an interesting observation, sort of easy in a way you're going to look towards the, uh, the West just after sunset. Um, most people probably listen to this podcast already are, are seeing Venus shining uh, brightly there in the Western sky. It's going to be coming down a little bit by this point in time. Um, but they are going to be fairly high up and, and in a reasonably dark sky uh, should be quite visible. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fun. On February 20th, we're going to have a new moon. 
Yeah. New moon is, is always a great time of the month. If you do want to get out and do some deep sky observing, that is the best time, you know, no moon equals a very dark sky. And, uh, if you're chasing galaxies or nebulas, that is the time to go. Yeah, exactly. So time, and I'm hoping, you know, we've, uh, we went through a warmer January than usual. We're back down on the deep freeze here. Um, I got up yesterday morning. There was a bit of a sucker hole going through. I wasn't getting sucked into that though. It was very small. And uh, to go look at the comment, uh, but it was minus 36 degrees Celsius out with the wind. So, uh, yeah, that's, it's not a great idea to go wandering around out in the prairie when it's that temperature, but I'm hoping, you know, by the end of February. And I remember we, we went observing, um, in 2020, the last observing session we all did together before the, uh, before the pandemic and, uh, and we got together and, uh, and we're observing and it was around the, the, uh, end of February, you had just come back from a short trip. I thought you were, you were, uh, a little bit, uh, out there to go traveling around when, when the pandemic was starting, but you made it back and we went observing and had a nice, uh, had a nice observing session towards the end of February. It was only like minus six or something. I remember that's really nice. Yeah, it was beautiful. I remember looking, um, I think we were looking at Orion quite a bit that night because I had my Teleview Genesis SDF and, uh, you know, able to get in all of Orion's belt and, and then quite a bit more sky in one field of view was, was a lot of fun. Yeah. February 21st, uh, in the evening sky, we have another matchup. This one's, uh, not going to be in the same field of view. This can be more like, uh, a naked eye view or maybe binoculars will help too. But on February 21st in the evening, just after sunset, um, above the horizon here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, you're going to see the moon, Venus, and Jupiter kind of all sort of in this arc. And they're all sort of very evenly spaced, at least uh, at least for us. Those that are uh, further west or maybe in Japan or e- even uh, even further west of us than, than that, you're going to see the moon and Venus get pretty close together um, on that night. I'm not exactly sure where it's going to be, maybe like even, uh, Europe or something like that. Um, but then on the next night on February 22nd for us, anyway, Jupiter and the moon, uh, will be visible in the same low power eyepiece in your telescope. So if you have a, uh, a smaller wide field refractor, like, like Shane and I typically use, um, that can give you a, at least about a three and a half or four degree field of view. You'll be able to get a very thin, crescent moon and jupiter and it's four moons in the same field of view so shane somebody could theoretically see five moons around jupiter that night (laughs) yeah it'll be uh, that observer like those two objects that close uh is amazing because there's so much detail that you can see within the jupiter cloud bands Mm. um and then going over to the moon when it's in phase like this along the terminator which is like where the light transitions into shadow and we're so much lives sorry doesn't arnold schwarzenegger live oh he may yeah 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 (laughs) but there's so much detail to see on the moon as well you could spend the whole night just on those objects until they set and and just see so much detail yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, I would like to sketch that one. I haven't done a lot of mm. lunar sketching. Um, I've got a few listeners that are like, come on, just get this paper, get this pencil and just do it. Mm-hmm. All right. But uh, yeah, I'll give it a try. I gave a shot at some lunar sketching back in, in December. And uh, yeah, I think if it's clear that night, fingers crossed, we start to get into some clear weather. We, we've certainly earned it at this point in time. 
Yeah, we've just been under cloud for for far too long, and uh, I'm starting to get a little cabin fever here. I I need some I need some photons, Chris. <laughs> You're photon starved. Yeah, I work with someone who's solar powered, actually. <laughs> All right. So uh, this event, though, it's another note I made on this event. February 22nd, Jupiter and Moon. They're going to be really close. Same field of view for us, but for those that are in the southern part of South America, I know we have people that listen. In, South America, but I think it's going to be very close for them, um, our listeners, but you'd have to get even further south, I think really far south in South America to see um, the moon actually pass in front of Jupiter. But it, but it's going to occur for those um, very southern uh, hemispheric observers there in South America. Mm-hmm. Right on. That'd be neat to see, but yeah, yeah, I don't think we have anybody that far south in South America. All right. If- Go ahead. I was just going to say, if we do, please email us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Good, Yeah, good point. I know I know we have people in, in Brazil. Um, I think there was somebody in Argentina. There's a few other folks that have written us, um, but nobody far enough south to see this, as far as I know. So people should watch it. And yeah, because we're not Southern Hemispheric observers, sometimes we're just not quite in the know. And uh Definitely appreciate uh, the odd correction that certainly we've received from our friends in Australia. They're pretty good about keeping us uh, keeping us in the know on what's going on down there. So maybe next year we'll go down. We had an invitation to go down to a star party down there. Just like you should go and attend this. And uh, Shane, I was surprised. I looked up the pricing and it wasn't that bad. I was nearly tempted to be like with our bad weather here, this mm-hmm. cold weather. I, it wasn't that bad to fly down there. In fact, it was less expensive for me to fly to Australia than it was to travel to my home province uh, <laughs> kilometers away. I'm not sure how that works, but um, I could go down to Australia for a week cheaper than I could go to Nova Scotia. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, my my wife and I are looking at... Uh... Uh, some destinations at about 13 degrees south uh, for next winter. So I'm quite excited for the potential there. Not not Southern Hemisphere, but we can start to, well, definitely see a lot more of the Southern sky than we see at uh, about 50, 51 degrees north here. I'm building an observatory instead. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not going anywhere for the time being. I <laughs> That's all I can do. That's all well, I can that, that's, that's a worthy... Uh, that's a worthy expenditure. So long term. you get a pass long term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was tempted though. I've been, it's funny, you know, I, I typically don't uh, put money aside like this, but I've been putting some money aside to, to get an observatory built. We were, we were chatting about that since that time have, you know, there's many telescopes that I've often dreamed about owning and I just would never have the money set aside to, to make any sort of purchase like that. And then I suddenly all these telescopes are appearing. Like sometimes many of them at the same time, I keep sending them to Shane. I'm like, please buy this. <laughs> it's like when you buy a blue car and then you just notice how many blue cars there are out there. <laughs> I don't like that. Although I haven't bought anything yet. So yeah. yeah, I'm looking at nuts and screws and stuff that doesn't really cement cement or wood. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with astronomy. It seems, but an observatory in the end. All right. February 26th. This is one I sort of pulled up. I think mm. I was looking at this. I was just like, what I do is I'll just watch the moon go through my planetarium software and sometimes and pick out interesting stuff. And, uh, on February 26th, the moon is going to be about halfway between the Pleiades and the Hyades. Oh yeah. That's awesome. 
Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's towards the first quarter moon, it's the day before the first quarter moon, right around first quarter moon. And so for somebody who's learning the sky, uh, that would be a good night to go up because sort of on the right, you're going to have the Pleiades and it's probably something maybe people have seen before. And if you're new to astronomy, you haven't quite identified it yet. And uh, sort of, so you go out in the 26th uh, of, uh, of February and to the right, you get the Pleiades and on the left, you have the Hyades, a great big cluster there with the bright orange Aldebaran in the middle. Yeah. So this, what, what makes this quite interesting to me is you can observe this with like three different classes of equipment. Number one, just your eyeballs will be fine. <laughs> you, you really don't need equipment to see, uh, to see this, but if you have binoculars, you'll start to really pull out more details in those clusters as well as, um, start to see some, uh, like detail and features of the moon. Um, but then if you have a telescope and you can kind of wander across the sky with that, um, it'll be a lot of fun. Again, you know, the, the Pleiades is, is just a, a gorgeous cluster. There's a lot of detail to see on the moon. And then the Hyades is a lot of fun to pan through as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, and with the, the first quarter moon, um, or just before the first quarter moon, like it'll be a little bit brighter in that area, but, and the sky will be a little bit washed out, but it, it won't be washed out enough to, um, like, uh, make those, uh, patterns invisible. Mm-hmm. So, especially if they have binoculars. Yeah. Yeah. You can, should be able to see it with the unaided eye. There are bright stars in that, in that area. So the next yep. night, February 27th. So this, the, the moon is between the Pleiades and the Hyades and the 26th and the 27th, we have the first quarter moon, which is typically nothing to celebrate too much. I mean, it's just the first quarter moon. It looks pretty similar the day before and the day after, but on that night, the Mars and the moon are going to be very close together again, just within a, a couple degrees. So again, you can take um, a medium-sized telescope and uh, maybe like uh, 70 or 80 power and get the moon and Mars in the same field of view. Yeah. And Mars will be in phase as well. So that will be kind of neat to see. You'll see the moon in its phase and then Mars sort of in its phase. Uh, it'll be fun. Uh, Mars, you know, getting quite small now compared to what it was, uh, you know, say a month or two ago, but, uh, still very observable. And, you know, you probably will still be able to tease out some of the albedo features potentially, uh, on the surface of Mars, depending on the aperture that you're using. You've been doing your homework. I didn't catch that bit about the phase there. That's, that could be, that, that could be interesting. So that even if you don't see too much on Mars, like you might see it like, like, you know, two or three different shades, you might see like sort of the reddish shade. You might see a little bit of the darker shade. Maybe you see a little bit of the white polar caps or polar hoods. And then to compare those phases, I think that's the observation for that. Agreed. Yep. Good idea. Thanks for that chain. And then on the 28th, we have the lunar straight wall visible that evening. So What's the uh, lunar straight wall? That's on the moon then, of course, because it's the lunar straight wall. But uh, what is it? What does this thing look like? How can people see this? Well, just to kick it off, it's a clear obscure effect, which is just like a shadow play that creates um, uh, like just an interesting thing to look at. And in this case, it's like a very straight line on the moon, which is uh, extremely unique because everything on the moon is very jagged and, you know, all sorts of random shapes and contours and blah, blah, blah. Um, now with the moon, as it goes through its phases and, you know, there's different, uh, like mountain ranges and craters and ridges 
all of this stuff catches light, but also casts shadows at different at, at different points throughout the month. And sometimes these, again, these like sort of shadow plays or plays on what's illuminated versus not creates interesting things to look at. So the lunar straight wall is one of them. Uh, we've talked uh, a lot about the lunar X in the past. There's a lunar V. And if you, if you just do an internet search on lunar Claire obscure effects, you'll find that there's actually quite a bit of these things that you can see throughout the month. Now, timing and location is everything for these. Um, you know, the straight wall is visible, I think for us on February 28th, but it may not be visible, uh, to observers, uh, in other areas of the world, uh, just because by the time, you know, the moon is, uh, visible for you, that, uh, that Claire obscure effect may have passed just due to the illumination and shadow, uh, play that's in effect at that time. Yeah. Usually it's visible for about 24 hours or so. If I, if I recall. Is it? Oh, okay. That one is a, a lot longer than like the, yeah, I think one, the lunar X is, is a little more fleeting. Yeah. That one is super fleeting. This one does last and maybe it's like 20 hours, but, but you're right. Like, and, and, you know, there's going to be times where it's more pronounced than others. So it's not, uh, and that's the challenge of the moon in my opinion is that it's not static there. So even just observing it from one moment to the next, you can notice oh, now I can see a peak in a crater, you know, and uh, you might be looking at a peak in a crater and then 10 minutes later, it's not visible anymore. If, if the moon is waning, if, um, you know, and, and if it's waxing, you know, suddenly more peaks are available and craters become washed out just over the course of, of even just, uh, an hour. Or so it's pretty surprising. Yeah, exactly. Comets, 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 comets. Yeah, this is, um, so, you know, we've been talking quite a bit now or, or for a while anyway, we've been talking about Comet ZTF E3, uh, but you have another one on the list here. That's interesting. I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah. So Shane and I are missing out on Comet ZTF. People keep writing us and asking us if we've seen it. It's great. Appreciate the emails and love reading people's observations. Uh, that's been a lot of fun because we've, we've just missed it. And we're, we were talking before we recorded today, we're resigned to the fact that we're probably just not going to see it. Um, on the two occasions, it has cleared off a little bit. It has been incredibly cold and there's even been some cloud. Like I looked out yesterday morning, I looked at the front and there was just high, um, moderate cloud up there and it was minus 36. And maybe I could have got, if I went out and waited, you know, if you could spend an hour outside waiting for that hole or one of the holes to pass over it, it'd be fine. But it's just, it's really hard to wait outside for an hour at minus 36. It's just, hopefully people don't think less of me for that. <laughs> uh, I don't, Chris. Yeah. That's the main thing. Um, my mom thinks I'm cool. All right. And ZTF though, E3, it's going to be faint towards the end of the month. By the time the moon's out of the sky, I looked it up, eighth magnitude fresh chain. So, Maybe towards the end of the month, we can see it. Then we can say, well, we saw it. <laughs> Making us 12 inch out in August and we can pick it up as a 14th magnitude smile. <laughs> yeah, right. Or mucus or something, right? Um, but there is a comet, good news and bad news. Comet K2 Panstars might be sixth magnitude that time. But when I looked it up, it's below our horizon. You'll no. need yeah. So you'll need to be heading south. But I was, I was thinking... Uh, I think Eric told us that he's going south mm -hmm. and maybe it's south enough that he can see it, but certainly our friends in Australia, um, it seems like we have lots of listeners down there now. And, uh, 
they're going to be able to see K2 pan stars. I can't remember what constellation it's in. It's probably in like the peacock or something like that. Um, because it was way, way below our horizon by like, I don't know, 25 degrees or something like that. So if Eric gets it where he's going, it's going to be low, but he might be able to. Um, but I think you really want to be below the equator to stand at a decent chance of of seeing it above the horizon. Well, good luck to the the Southern Hemisphere observers on that one. So I thought we would do, you know, carry, carry this forward. Um, last month we did Origa. Mm-hmm. And this month we do Orion. Rig actually starts with an A. Orion starts with an O. As uh, a bit of it, we used to do deep dives on the constellations, but I'm going to rename these as our shallow dives. We're we're just snorkeling now. <laughs> snorkeling. We should call them instead of like I'm from a place by the ocean. I now live in a place the deepest thing is a slough, which is basically a thing that the horses drink out of. I think is like a slough dive. <laughs> uh, it, and I think a I, you know. I'm going way off script here, Chris, but I, I think a slough is also more of a regional term here for a, a small pond. Really, <laughs> I never heard it before I moved here. That yeah, and Quonset, yeah. which I think is more oh, widely nice. used. I would just say a building out in a field, but here it <laughs> sounds very fancy. Oh, we're going out to the Quonset. And then you put it just like, oh, it's an old building full of hay. Nice. <laughs> All right. So back to Orion. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I think of my first views, I had a lot of trouble not putting Orion into the January episode mm-hmm. because when I first get into astronomy, like really into, I was always interested in it and looking at meteor showers and looking at, um, lunar eclipses, but virtually all with the unaided eye, the odd time I get a view through a telescope somebody would have. And, you know, I'd find out like a kid on the other side of town had a telescope and I would like drive over there and inevitably they didn't know how to use it. And I'd be very disappointed. Um, and my parents wouldn't buy me a telescope for some strange reason because I was more into sports and they thought that I just wouldn't ever take up something like astronomy would just be too, uh, educational academic for somebody like me, but here we are. Anyway, when I first got into astronomy and somebody, uh, not my family had given me a pair of binoculars for Christmas, I, I went out with a buddy of mine and we very quickly found Orion and we very quickly found uh, the Orion Nebula just using a pair of binoculars. But we must have gone out late because I remember it was nice and high and the moon was full. And uh, really the best month, at least in my opinion, to observe Orion is in February because typically it's a little bit warmer, which for us means a lot. And uh, it's also passing the meridian. It's also at its highest point, um, just like about an hour or so after it gets dark so you set up it gets dark you observe it for you observe the orion constellation all the great stuff in there we'll go over that in a second and then um you know typically you're only going to be out for two maybe three hours if it's not too cold and so you get like the full benefit of orion at its highest point above um the meridian otherwise or above the horizon otherwise when it's in the meridian otherwise you have to uh wait for it in in december if you go out it's just really coming up so mm-hmm. you'd have to plan to be out later like maybe like 11 o'clock or something like that january it's a little bit earlier but it doesn't cross until you know, like 9 30 or 10 o'clock but then in february it's at the meridian at like uh i think like 8 30 or so about an hour or so after it gets dark for us anyway so um anyway n- nice opportunity to take a look at orion in february yeah yeah this makes a lot of sense and i wholeheartedly agree that this is sort of prime time for Orion. So 
when I teach my class, and I, I'm going to do another class in uh, in the spring. Ryan will still be pretty high. I'll start my class the first part of March. Um, the earliest depiction of Orion is something I was I was curious about because Orion has this hourglass figure, um, and is a hunter. It's sort of a prominent group of stars with these uh, three bright belt stars. It, it really does look like something, and in most cultures if you go through like any entry on early depictions of orion you'll see there's um you know uh sky lore mythology uh, uh china india um you know indigenous cultures from all over the world um you know the greeks uh you know you go you go and look at any culture and they've got a depiction of um typically the group of the stars that we refer to as orion now as a grouping of stars, but the earliest one was found in Germany. This is the, I think it's actually one of the earliest depictions, if not the earliest depiction of an identifiable constellation from 38,000 years ago on an ivory carving. Wow. This is interesting. That, I think that is really interesting. It was found in like 1979 or something like that. I remember because I was trying to talk to people about the uh and i when i teach my courses sort of teach them a little bit of the history like how long have we seen these patterns you know how long have people really been looking up and kind of paying attention to things because the strange thing about humans uh is that we do this now birds and other animals will do it for uh some more practical purposes but for our purposes we kind of just just look at them they were used in agriculture for a long time but people are still sort of uh, having their imaginations captured by the stars, even though like in many respects, there's no real practical or or financial benefit or anything like that to actually looking at the stars in constellations. Um, but it really seems like this uh, is something that's always been with humans. But there's there's really nothing that uh, that 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 means that we really in many ways have to do this so much uh, apart from some of the early agricultural practices they're very important for that um but it's just kind of interesting that that they took the time uh to carve that out uh known orion was known to the early babylonians as the heavenly shepherd which actually makes a little bit more sense mm-hmm. in greek mythology he was a supernatural hunter and uh, i don't know if that means he was a hunter that hunted supernaturally or if he had supernatural powers so think about that he was also very boastful And eventually the gods kind of get sick of his boastfulness and they sent a scorpion to kill him. And then eventually he and the scorpion were placed up in the sky so that they would sort of quit their fighting. But uh, they're sort of on more or less opposite sides of the sky, such that for the most part, especially for us way up here in Northern North America, um, you don't see Orion and Scorpius in the sky at the same time because otherwise they'd just be quarreling. But once you get down to like, uh, 20 degrees north latitude you can see um orion sort of setting as as uh, scorpius is rising uh when you get into like april or something like that but orion is most definitely a winter constellation and the stars can help guide us around you know you got those belt stars you you follow them uh, up into the right as a bit of a pointer you get to aldebaran up in taurus follow them down to the left you get to sirius 
which is uh, the brightest star in Canis Major. You follow the two stars um, on his shoulders, and uh, they link up to Procyon. And then if you follow uh, Rigel and Betelgeuse as a really long line, that uh, points up into the general Castrum Pollux area. And Orion is that central feature of like the winter G, winter circle, winter hexagon, that kind of pattern. Uh, it's best to always start with Orion. It's the most easily identifiable constellation and if you do astronomy in the winter it's probably the one that uh that you learn first maybe even before the big dipper just because situated so nice into the south yeah it is just so large and so prominent with all of the bright stars that form that constellation it's it's easily one of the more recognizable uh patterns in the sky the big thing in orion what's what's the big thing to look at in a telescope if you're gonna look at orion shane Probably M42, uh, which is a Messier designation, uh, also known as the Great Orion Nebula. Uh, it's massive, it's bright, it's beautiful, uh, looks incredible in any telescope of any aperture, in my opinion. And uh, it is something I've observed hundreds of times, and I'm never, ever bored of it. I always go back. It is absolutely beautiful. And it's a star from a region just about 2,000 light years away. But it's visible even to the unaided eye as a fuzzy spot in the sword of Orion. So how do you find the sword of Orion? I think it's it's a pretty easy thing to find, isn't it? You just basically you find that Orion's belt region, mm -hmm. and then you just drop straight down from the middle star in the belt when Orion's on the median, meridian, uh, just uh, basically down towards the horizon about uh, a binocular field, and you'll get to this vertical line of uh, fuzzy stars and clusters and that sort of thing and the one uh, just sort of uh in the middle the the bright fuzzy thing that is the orion nebula mm -hmm. and and it's something that i can even tease out a little bit naked eye even from my backyard in light polluted skies yeah um it's very easy to find so if you've never seen it uh this like make a point uh, of checking this out particularly if you have binoculars or a telescope yeah it's been known for a long time. Though. I think Piercic was the first one to actually uh, discover it with the telescope that Galileo gave him, uh, you know, not too long after Galileo within, uh, you know, about uh, 10 years or so of, of Galileo first pointing a telescope at the heavens. Um, Piercic was able to, uh, to stumble upon it, but there's not really any early depictions, at least that I've ever come across that it was uh, depicted or drawn as a fuzzy star or anything like that prior to that, even though now that we know what it is, it, it seems very easy to, uh, to see that region as a fuzzy spot. Like you said, even with your eye. Yeah, absolutely. Looks great in binoculars with all those clusters around it. And then through a telescope views can be spectacular just from a giant uh, cloud with a few little stars in the middle. And if you get a big enough telescope, some people even report seeing a little bit of that reddish color there. Uh, of course, the seeing color in a telescope is uh, pretty darn difficult in the chain. It is. Yeah. You would probably need, you know, a fairly large aperture telescope and, and fairly pristine skies if you're hoping to, to tease out some color. But, you know, I know people have reported greens uh, occasionally and, and the odd time, maybe a, just a hint of like a purpley pink, but um, it is possible. I just, uh, you know, don't go in with that expectation because it's quite difficult. Yeah. I've seen it on a few occasions in my many years of observing, yep. but it's, it's tough. It's tough to see. Okay. Anything to uh, add to this, our objects to observe in the February, 2023 night sky, Shane? 
Um, yeah, just maybe a couple touches on, um, maybe one touch on uh, a double star in Orion. Uh, Rigel is a very interesting double star to me. It's the uh, bottom right foot of Orion, if you're looking up. And it's, um, it, it you know, Rigel itself is a fairly bright star and its companion is uh, quite dim in comparison. But the separation uh, is is fairly close. Now, you know, if, if you don't, uh, if you're unable to split it, it just might be the sky conditions limiting you. So it's a good test to tell you about how good the sky is that night. But also, you know, not related to Orion, uh, if you are trying to split Sirius, which is, uh, you know, a, a prominent winter star, uh, the, the separation distance between Sirius A and B is the same as Rigel A and B, basically. So if you're attempting Sirius, start with Rigel. It'll give you uh, a good feel for the distance that you're looking for and also tell you whether or not the sky is uh, going to cooperate with you that night. So uh, it's a fun little double and it can lead to a, a very interesting split attempt with Sirius if, uh, if everything holds up for you. Very cool. Anything else to add? That's it, Chris. Cool. Well, if uh, you're still listening, folks out there, hopefully you are, and you enjoyed the podcast, sure would appreciate if you do us a favor and leave a five-star review and say something positive about the show. And we're always happy to receive emails to the Actual Astronomy Podcast at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.